have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Eagle, the podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... This ceremony and the treaty we're signing today are both excellent examples of the rewards of patience. Perhaps we can negotiate a different agreement, or perhaps we can't, in which case we will outspend and out-innovate all others by far. With a global pandemic raging across the world for months, the virus has been absolutely dominating news cycles and public attention to the exclusion of almost anything else. And for good reason, really, considering the rising death toll, the economic devastation, and the fact that our way of life has been fundamentally upended. But even if it feels like we're living through a strange and confusing limbo right now, the world hasn't exactly stopped on its axis. Politics and power grabs are still happening all around us. And some world leaders are even using the pandemic distraction to chase long-held goals festering under the surface or playing out on the sidelines of this global crisis are problems totally unrelated to the virus that we've just lost sight of. So for this week's episode, here are three of them that we should all be keeping one eye on. First up, a new nuclear arms race. Last Wednesday, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, released a report showing that countries around the world had spent nearly $73 billion on nuclear weapons in 2019, almost a 10% spending increase from the year before. Leading the pack by miles was the United States, which was responsible for almost half of the whole global expenditure. That was also a $6 billion uptick from what the U.S. spent in 2018. If this seems surprising or alarming, it shouldn't have been if you listened to President Trump speaking back in February 2019 when he announced that the U.S. was withdrawing from a nuclear treaty with Russia. Perhaps we can negotiate a different agreement, or perhaps we can't, in which case we will outspend and out-innovate all others by far. The treaty that he's talking about was called the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF, and it was forged between the U.S. and the Soviet Union back in 1987. This ceremony and the treaty we're signing today are both excellent examples of the rewards of patience. On the Soviet side, over 1,500 deployed warheads will be removed, and all ground-launched Intermediate-range missiles, including the SS-20s, will be destroyed. On our side, our entire complement of Pershing-2 and ground-launch cruise missiles 
with some 400 deployed warheads, will all be destroyed. Additional backup missiles on both sides will also be destroyed. The treaty was a milestone for the two superpowers and a huge breath of relief after decades of an ever-increasing arms race where the only consolation people had against being destroyed by a distant enemy at any moment was the certainty of mutually assured destruction. And if that sounds overblown, then it's because we've forgotten what the stakes were like back then. The intermediate-range missiles that the treaty banned were seen as a hair-trigger for nuclear war because of their short flight times, able to reach an enemy in as little as 10 minutes. This especially worried Moscow because it meant the American weapons would be able to destroy their command center before they could order a retaliatory strike. So to make up for this shortcoming, the Soviets developed something called a dead hand trigger, in which a fleet of nuclear weapons would be sent to the United States without anyone in Moscow authorizing a strike, but just based on computers interpreting radiation and seismic activity. Computers from the 80s, mind you. So this is where we were when Reagan and Gorbachev stood together at the White House and agreed to severely limit their nuclear arsenals and eliminate a whole category of weapon altogether. We have listened to the wisdom of, in an old Russian maxim, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is dovayai no provayai, trust but verify. <laughs> Over the next three years, the United States and the Soviet Union destroyed thousands of warheads and missiles. In 2001, a ceremony between the U.S. and Russia in Moscow celebrated the official completion of the treaty's goals. But in 2014, that all changed. New charges this morning of putting more strain on the relationship between Russia and the United States. The Obama administration accuses the Russian government of breaking an important nuclear treaty. Bill Plant is at the White House where officials say they have proof that Russia cheated. Bill, good morning. Well, good morning. The president sent a letter Monday to Russian President Vladimir Putin calling on Russia to observe the terms of the treaty. The White House hasn't revealed the details of that letter, but officials here say the administration believes that Russia has tested ground-launched missiles, a clear violation of a treaty nearly 30 years old. That was CBS. So the Obama administration accused Russia of testing a missile that was prohibited by the INF Treaty. But President Obama emphasized in his letter to President Putin that he wanted to solve this diplomatically and had no intention of trying to nullify the treaty. But in the years that followed, the U.S. State Department continued to find in every annual assessment that Russia was violating the treaty and building prohibited missiles. Russia denied the allegations fervently, and even went so far as to put a version of the so-called prohibited missile on display to a foreign audience in 2019, trying to make the point that it was being totally transparent. The Trump administration called the display meaningless and said it did nothing to ease their concerns. So Russia fired back, so to speak, and accused the U.S. in turn of violating the treaty. Moscow argued that one of the U.S.'s missile defense systems could easily be modified to become an offensive system, so it's actually the U.S. that's the treaty violator. 
This all led to the Trump administration announcing its official withdrawal from the INF Treaty, unless Russia destroys the illicit weapons within six months. But far from caving to the pressure, President Putin announced days later Russia's withdrawal from the treaty as well, and the Russian military vowed to start building new missiles. So the INF Treaty that was so welcomed back in 1987 is officially dead. But fortunately, INF isn't the only treaty holding the U.S. and Russia back from a full-fledged arms race. There's one more agreement inherited from the Cold War arms race that still survives. And that one's the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or New START, which was signed in 2010. Today is an important milestone for nuclear security and nonproliferation and for U.S. Russia relations. It fulfills our common objective to negotiate a new strategic arms reduction treaty. It includes significant reductions in the nuclear weapons that we will deploy. It cuts our delivery vehicles by roughly half. It includes a comprehensive verification regime which allows us to further build trust. The 16-point agreement limits the number of nuclear warheads and missiles that the two countries can possess. But this last remaining treaty expires in early February next year. And while Russia has signaled that they're willing to renew the treaty, the Trump administration has signaled the reverse. President Trump says they have no interest in renewing it unless China can be brought on board as well, an idea that Beijing has flat out refused. And even if China was keen, by now it's far too late to draft a totally new document. So the only hope is that a new administration takes over in the November election that's friendly to a renewal agreement, or there's a last-minute reversal by the Trump administration. But if last year's nuclear spending is any indication, that option seems pretty far-fetched. With this last treaty scrapped, the two superpowers will find themselves once again barreling towards a nuclear arms race, with nothing holding them back. Next up, tensions between Iran and the U.S. Though there hasn't been much mention of it since the pandemic began, tensions between the U.S. and Iran have been festering all the while and are set to get a lot worse. When President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal in 2018, it didn't exactly nullify the agreement. The U.S. doesn't have the power to do that on its own. This left other signatories, like Europe, in an awkward position, to say the least. Uh, the European Union will continue to work for uh, the respect and the implementation of this extremely important deal. It's the first anniversary today of the, uh, the JCPOA, the points of agreement with Iran, uh, which is, of course, a, as you know, a difficult deal, a controversial deal, but one that has stopped the Iranians from acquiring uh, nuclear technology they might otherwise have acquired. And it's a deal that we think has great merit and we want to, to keep going. One important part of the deal that survives, but not for much longer, is an arms embargo. Basically, according to a UN resolution that accompanied the Iran nuclear deal, countries aren't allowed to sell any kind of advanced weaponry to Iran. But this embargo is set to expire on October 18th of this year. Russia, for one, is definitely not going to agree to any extension of the embargo past the October expiration date. 
This means that any extension is pretty much dead in the water because Russia can use its veto power on the UN Security Council to prevent it. So that being the case, once the embargo officially expires, President Trump wants European countries to punish Iran with even more intense economic sanctions unless they agree to a new nuclear deal. So basically, if the past few years since the U.S. pulled out of the Obama-era deal have looked like a mess, with the U.S. and Iran trading threats and fire and Europe caught in the middle, it's nothing compared to what's in store for this fall. And if you haven't been following the U.S.-Iran chaos of the past few years, check out my podcast from a few months ago called The Shadow War. Finally, Israel and the West Bank. On Wednesday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo took a 16-hour flight in the middle of a global pandemic to make an emergency call on Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. After months and months of political deadlock and three elections in a single year, Netanyahu finally managed to form a government with his former rival, which gave him another term as prime minister. And one of the main things that Bibi Netanyahu campaigned on was an annexation of some of the controversial West Bank territory. And one of the first announcements he made after securing another term as PM was indeed that annexation, hence the emergency visit from the U.S.'s top diplomat. Just days after Netanyahu's announcement, new violence erupted between Israelis and Palestinians in reaction to it. On Tuesday, an Israeli soldier was killed by a heavy rock that was thrown from a house near the northern West Bank. If the visit by Pompeo coming a day after this attack and a day before the new Israeli government officially formed was expected to be a rebuke to Bibi's new annexation plans, that was quickly dispelled by the very chummy press conference the two men gave together. We so deeply appreciate the fact that uh, this is your first trip abroad in some time, that you're making it to Israel for six hours. Uh, I think this is a testament to the strength of our alliance, to the strength of President Trump's commitment to the state of Israel, and to the uh, strength of your commitment. I want to uh, thank you for that, too. Thank you, Mike. Thank Welcome. You. Thank you uh, very much, Mr. Prime Minister. Uh, I want to express my condolences, too, for the soldier uh, yesterday uh, that was killed. It reminds us all of the importance of making sure that uh, people all across the world know that Israel has the right to defend itself, and America will consistently support you in that effort. The Trump administration has always had a close relationship with Netanyahu, while the rest of the international community has been much less warm towards him, even openly condemning him. For decades, bodies like the UN and the European Union have criticized Israel for what they would call illegal settlements in the West Bank. The conflict and territory dispute here is complicated, but here are the basic facts about the West Bank. A couple of peace treaties signed in the 1990s between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, known as the Oslo Accords, tried to figure out a two-state solution for the Israelis and Palestinians that have been fighting over the same territory for a century. The Accords gave Palestinians limited self-governance over parts of the West Bank, but stopped short of actually establishing a state of Palestine or explicitly forbidding Israel from creating settlements in the West Bank. 
And so since the 90s, every Israeli government has taken advantage of that to increase Jewish settlements in the West Bank. There were 200,000 settlements when the accords were signed, and since then, the number has tripled. The UN and the US have always condemned this and called the settlements illegal. But in 2019, that changed. The Trump administration is reversing the Obama administration's approach towards Israeli settlements. U.S. public statements on settlement activities in the West Bank have been inconsistent over decades. In 1978, the Carter administration categorically concluded that Israel's establishment of civilian settlements was inconsistent with international law. However, in 1981, President Reagan disagreed with that conclusion. After carefully studying all sides of the legal debate, this administration agrees with President Reagan. The establishment of Israeli civilian settlements in the West Bank is not, per se, inconsistent with international law. That might not sound like a very explosive comment, but it was. With that one statement, the U.S. reversed decades of policy towards Israel and Palestine. And while the U.S. doesn't have any legal authority here to make a call on whether these settlements violate international law or not, it obviously has tons of political clout. This signal from the Trump administration that the settlements aren't per se inconsistent with international law shifts the West Bank from being an occupied territory to a disputed territory. So with the backing of the U.S., Netanyahu feels more and more empowered to extend these settlements. And now that his fifth term has finally been secured, he's made his boldest statement yet, which is this annexation plan where these Jewish settlements that most of the world sees as illegal would officially become part of the state of Israel, officially carving out territory that the Palestinians hoped would be part of a future state of Palestine. And this brings us to what really worries the international community here. The fact is, the more Israel encroaches on the West Bank, the more impossible it becomes to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with a two-state solution. Because if we haven't gotten to this point already, there soon won't be enough territory left to even have a Palestinian state. Pompeo's visit on Wednesday, despite the chummy press conference, was seen as changing the U.S. signal from a green light to more like a yellow light as far as Netanyahu's annexation plans. Netanyahu and his former rival, now partner in government, Benny Gantz, had said that their move to annex these territories would be conditional on approval from Washington. But Pompeo's response was basically, we're staying out of it. We're glad that there's a now fully formed government in Israel. As for the uh, annexation in the West Bank, uh, the Israelis will ultimately make those decisions. Those, that's an Israeli decision, uh, and we, uh, we will work closely with them to share with them our views of this in a private setting. Netanyahu says that, following an agreement made with Benny Gantz, Israel will start putting these annexation plans into motion on July 1st. If they manage to do that, while the rest of the world is preoccupied with a deadly virus and a decimated economy, any hope for Israeli-Palestinian peace could come to a swift end while no one's even watching. And that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Taryn Siegel. And stay safe, guys.
everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.